the National Archives podcast series, Hunting for Spies in the National Archives, presented by Ben McIntyre as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. Let me begin with a rather bold claim, which is that um, D-Day, the turning point of the Second World War, was in some ways a victory for record-keeping. It was, to some extent, a battle won by archivists. Now, let me just follow up this thought. Um, D-Day was, of course, an incredible feat of arms. It was a heroic triumph of strategy and raw courage. But it was also a success for a different kind of operation, a, a deception operation. Operation Fortitude was the most sophisticated and, I would argue, the most successful military deception ever attempted. Uh, It was carried out by a team called the Double Cross Team within MI5, and it ensured that Hitler kept an entire army awaiting a fake invasion that never happened. It saved thousands of lives, and it helped to secure Allied victory at a most critical juncture. But it was also a triumph of paperwork. The Double Cross system depended on a filing and archive system That was vast, complicated and meticulous. It's not too much to say that without the extraordinary record-keeping system devised by the spy runners of the Second World War, the great D-Day deception might well have failed. And had it done so, then the history of the 20th century would have been very different. The great British talent for keeping and maintaining records played a vital but largely unacknowledged role in winning the Second World War. We fought them on the beaches, we fought them on the landing grounds, in the fields and in the streets, but we also, with remarkable success, fought them among the filing cabinets. (laughs) Most of the wartime files relating to the double-cross deception have now been released to the National Archives. That material has formed the evidential basis for my last three books and is uh, the subject of my talk today. Now, let me take you back to uh, the start of the war and a man called Tommy Robertson, Thomas Argyle Robertson, universally known as Tar on account of his initials, but uh, privately known as Passion Pants on account of his habit of wearing tartan trousers at all times. Now, Robertson was a most unlikely spy master. He, um, he had been a failed stockbroker, uh, a hopeless banker, um, a, a not very good uh, soldier, But he had two very important talents. One, he was a man of rock-ribbed moral probity, which made him extremely good at lying. And the second talent he had was a brilliant grip on how to maintain, make and maintain records. Now, at the start of the war, Thomas Robertson found himself as head of a a group within MI5 with a deliberately boring name of B1A. Uh, it was the most interesting section of the entire intelligence establishment, in my view, because what, it, what B1A did was run double agents. Uh, B1A was responsible, with the help of Bletchley Park, the intercepts from Bletchley Park and Special Branch, they were responsible for intercepting enemy spies landing in this country. And they came by the dozen. At the beginning of the war, the invasion spies arrived in an extraordinary flood. They came by boat. They came by parachute, they came by seaplane, they came by submarine. Um, And what these spies had in common was that they were almost uniformly hopeless. Um, Many of them had not been trained at all. Some spoke no English whatever. Um, There was a particularly gallant fellow who arrived uh, on the coast of Banff in a rowing boat with a wireless and a bicycle. 
who managed to make his way brilliantly to the local train station where he asked uh, for a ticket to London and on being told that it was ten and six, doled out ten pounds and six shillings and was immediately arrested on the grounds that someone who didn't understand the duodecimal system must be a spy. Correct in this case. These spies were all rounded up. The spies I'm going to introduce you to first, each of whom has their own section in the National Archives, were different in kind, because these five, who represent, I would argue, perhaps the most eccentric military unit ever assembled, uh, their code names were Treasure, Tricycle, Brutus, Bronx and Garbo, they were different in kind, because in each case they had been trained by the German intelligence system, by the Abwehr, the military intelligence uh, unit, and in each case they had decided, for reasons of their own, to spy for the other side. Now, the first of this group uh, is Dushko Popov, Agent Tricycle. He was a louche international businessman uh, with a large private income um, and an insatiable sexual appetite. His, um, his codename was Tricycle. There are two theories as to why he was called Tricycle. One is that he was, uh, they invented two sub-agents uh, to run co-jointly with Popov, uh, and therefore he was a big wheel with two smaller wheels. Uh, the actual reason was that he never went to bed with less than two women at once. Um, now, Popov was recruited into the German Abwehr by a man called Johnny Jebsen, who also has his own archival section in the National Archives. Jebsen was a most eccentric um, figure in many ways. He was Danish by birth, but German by adoption. Uh, and he was what was known in the Abwehr as a Foscher, which was a kind of freelance spy recruiter, literally researcher. Um, but he was a very odd man, in a way, for the job, because he was, a, he was a, a committed Anglophile. He spoke very good English. He was a great friend of P.G. Woodhouse. And um, he recruited Popov, while at the same time telling Popov that he really didn't want Germany to win the war, if possible. Um, a, a subject uh, which uh, was very close to Popov's heart, because the moment that Popov arrived in London with a commission from the advert to spy for German intelligence, he immediately flipped over to MI5 and became Agent Tricycle under the care of B1A. Now, the second of our group uh, is a man called uh, Roman Chernavsky, Agent Brutus. Uh, his story is told in two fat volumes um, in, in the archives, in the KV series. Now, Chernavsky was a, a patriotic Polish fighter pilot. Um, he is the only one of our five who was actually trained in intelligence. At the on the fall of France, the fall of Poland, he, was, he, he and his unit were retreating back uh, and at the fall of France, unlike most of his compatriots who came over and joined the Polish government in exile in London, Chernavsky decided to stay in occupied France, where he set up a group, uh, an, a, a large espionage network called the Inter Allié Network. Now, if any of you are looking to write a book at the moment, I strongly suggest that you take a look at the Inter Allié Network because no one's ever really written about it. And at the beginning of the war, it was the only spy network that MI5 and MI6 had within occupied France. It was hugely successful. But it was betrayed from within by uh, the lover of Roman Chernavsky, Mathilde Carré, who also has her file here. Um, and he was arrested by the Gestapo. And he was given a choice not unlike the choice that Tal Robertson was giving to the intercepted German spies in Britain. Chernavsky was told by the Gestapo that either he could um, face trial and certain execution... Or he could spy for them. Naturally, being a sensible man, he took the latter option and was duly taken by fast torpedo boat to the coast of, of Britain. He was landed in Britain, 
presented himself immediately to the British authorities and explained that he wanted to spy for them instead. So we have here our first example of a triple agent. Um, they gave him the code name Brutus, partly because they were never quite certain whether he might not turn around and simply stab them in the back at the first opportunity. Uh, the third and my favourite of this group is uh, Agent Bronx, who went by, I think, the unimprovable name of Elvira Concepcion Josefina de la Fuente Chaudoire. She was the, a bisexual Peruvian playgirl who had run out of money at the beginning of the war due to a ferocious gambling habit uh, and had been recruited by MI6, in fact, not by MI5 this time, MI6 being the external uh, intelligence organisation of the British Empire. And uh, she was sent to unoccupied southern France as what is known in spy parlance as a coat trailer. Now, a coat trailer is somebody who deliberately tries to get themselves recruited by the opposition with the intention always of being a double agent. This she did. She arrived um, in the south of France where she was duly picked up by, uh, in fact, a Gestapo intelligence officer called Gustave Biel. Uh, and she was given, recruited by him, she was given uh, secret ink, taught how to use it, and was given a mission to penetrate British high society. The idea was that she would come back to London and start to mix and mingle in the sort of high society salons of Mayfair and send letters to a safe house in Lisbon, innocuous-seeming letters to a, to a safe address, between the lines of which, using secret ink, she would insert messages for her German controller. She, too, joined B1A. Now we have probably the most important of all. Uh, this is Juan Pujol, codenamed Garbo, on account of his astonishing acting abilities. Um, Garbo was a, a Catalan... Um, who had somehow contrived to fight on both sides during the Spanish Civil War and emerged with a ferocious distaste for nationalism in all its forms. He, um, he was the only one of our spies who always intended to become a double agent. And uh, he volunteered, first of all, to the German intelligence service in Madrid, uh, who turned him away, assuming that he was mad. And he then presented himself to the British Embassy and explained that he wanted to spy... He, he already approached the Germans, but actually wanted to spy for Britain. They sent him away as well. So uh, Pujol did what spies often do. He simply went freelance. Uh, he decided he would become a spy anyway. So he headed off uh, for Britain, but only got as far as Lisbon, because he hadn't realised that you had to have a visa to get into wartime Britain. So he was stuck in Lisbon. So he did, again, what spies often do. Uh, he began to make it up. He... He went to the local library and took out a lot of rather outdated uh, books about British, the British Navy and began to send messages, first of all by letter and then latterly by wireless, to the Madrid advert, to the German uh, head of the intelligence service there. And more and more information of a completely invented sort uh, began to arrive at the German embassy. And amazingly, they believed it, even though it was peppered with hilarious mistakes. Um, Pujol had never actually been to Britain. Uh, he knew nothing about the country, whatever, apart from what he'd managed to cull from the local library in Lisbon. So his uh, messages included such things as descriptions of uh, amphibious manoeuvres on Lake Windermere. <laughs> of course, landlocked. Um, my favourite of his messages is one that begins, I am currently in Glasgow, where they will do anything for a litre of wine. <laughs> Which is probably true, in fact, but at the time, a slight anachronism. Anyway... Uh, as I said, amazingly, the German advert believed this stuff, but it sent a thrill of panic through, through the London authorities because, of course, his messages were being picked up. The wireless messages were picked up by Bletchley Park. And it appeared that there was 
a spy on the loose in Britain, sending back the most extraordinary messages, most of which were completely wrong. They finally worked out that Garbo, or Pujol rather, must be the man who had presented himself at the Madrid embassy. They picked him up, they took him to a safe house in Hendon in North London, um, a, a completely innocuous, semi-detached uh, house on a, on a little street in Hendon. In fact, I'm trying to get a blue plaque for it at the moment, because so, um, I think it would look wonderful. This is the semi-detached that won the Second World War. <laughs> Garbo spent most of the rest of the war there. And finally, Agent Treasure, the last of the five. Her real name was Lily Sergeyev. She was a French woman of white Russian origin. Her motives are in some ways the least penetrable of all the five. It's still very hard to work out what Lily Sergeyev was really up to. She was recruited by the German Abwehr in, in occupied Paris. She was trained in wireless and in secret ink usage. And she arrived in Madrid in 1943 and presented herself to the head of station there, a man called Kenneth Benton, um, and explained that although she had been recruited by the German Abwehr, she actually wanted to spy for Britain instead. Uh, but there was a catch. She explained that she wanted to take her dog with her. <laughs> now, this is Babs. Uh, Babs may seem like a red herring, but actually Babs plays a critically important part in this story because there is a hilarious entry in Kenneth Benton's diary in which he describes trying to explain to an increasingly hysterical French woman that she cannot take her dog with her to Britain because there are quarantine laws and the dog will have to stay in Gibraltar pending uh, quarantine, at which point uh, the dog will be shipped to her in London. At least that is what Lily thought she had heard Kenneth Benton say. Just keep Babs in mind as we move along. Now, running these double agents generated a staggering amount of paperwork. John Masterman, who was the head of something called the 20 Committee, which was the steering committee for double agents, and the 20 Committee so-called because a 20 in Roman numerals forms a double cross. That was the kind of joke they lied. Like, uh, John Masterman said, only a well-kept record can save the agent from blunders which may blow him, or inconsistencies which may create suspicion. The files of B1A grew to a truly formidable size, each one indexed and cross-referenced. Each case officer had his or her own secretary just to keep track of it. There were four filing clerks. Here's Masterman again. The messages of any one agent had to be consistent with the messages sent by him at an earlier date and not inconsistent with the messages of other agents. They also had to keep track of the people these messages were going to. By the end of the war... MI5 had assembled a sort of who's who of German spying. It's 20 volumes long. The Garbo case alone generated 21 files, more than a million pieces of paper. But it yielded extraordinary results. In 1943, Robertson sent a memo to Churchill in which he made a very extravagant claim. He said that not some, not most... But every single German spy that had been sent to Britain had been intercepted and they were all either in prison or dead or working for the British intelligence service. In other words, it meant that the German network of spies in Britain was being run by Britain. Now, the implications of this were quite extraordinary because it meant that for the first time in history, an enemy intelligence network could actually be used to feed false information to the people who thought they were running it. In other words... It was an opportunity to begin strategically altering the views of the German high command. Now, let me just give you a very small strategic overview of where we are in 1943. 
Everybody knew that the invasion of fortress Europe, of occupied Europe, was coming. Uh, the Germans knew it was coming, the occupied French knew it was coming, the Allies knew it was coming. The key question was where was it coming? Now there are really only two spots on the northern coast of France where you can land an army of 150,000 men. The obvious target is Calais. Calais is the closest point to the British Isles. Uh, it has deep water ports which are essential for refueling and revictualling a, a huge army. And of course it's the most direct route to Germany. It's, once you're in Calais, it's really a straight line uh, to the German heartland. Now, so that is the obvious target. And because it was the obvious target, it was heavily reinforced. The mighty 15th Army, Hitler's 15th Army, was massed around Calais. So the Allies decided to go instead for Normandy. Now, there were good reasons for that. One is that the wide, sloping beaches of Normandy are an ideal spot to land that large number of craft. And so the object of the deception team, B1A, and, and, the, and the wider deception team, which took it MI6, MI5, GCHQ, was to try to convince the Germans that instead of uh, attacking, uh, the, 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 the obvious target was the target. Now, bear in mind that barely a year earlier, Operation Mincemeat had tried to do exactly the reverse. Operation Mincemeat tried to convince the Germans that the obvious target, Sicily, was not the target when it was. So, in a way, they had to turn 180 degrees. Now, every single element of the secret establishment was used to try to reinforce this deception. But the core of it was formed by the five double agents of B1A. Popov flew back and forth between London and Lisbon, where his control, neutral Lisbon, where his controlling German officer operated from. He was the only one of the five to make regular face-to-face -face contact with the Germans. It was incredibly brave of him, because at any point, had he been revealed to be a double agent, he would have faced certain death. Because he was a professional, because he was a trained military intelligence officer, Chernovsky's uh, material was considered to be of the highest grade by the Germans. Um, indeed, uh, they believed everything he was sending them. And he began, along with Popov, to, to begin to send these small elements. You, you cannot simply tell the enemy the invasion is going to be in Calais. You had to do it by hints and nudges, by spottings, by sightings of different divisions. Aiding them in the rather further in the background, but still very importantly, was Agent Bronx, Elvira Chaudois. Her, her job was to send more and more elaborate letters describing conversations uh, she had never had with people that she had never met. These included high-ranking generals, members of the cabinet, and all of them, needless to say, were completely invented. One of the funny things about Bronx is that her initial assessments by intelligence British intelligence were tremendously chauvinist and universally negative. They said she's hopeless, she's a good-time girl, she'll never produce any good intelligence. She became more and more and more important to the whole operation. But perhaps the most important of all was Agent Garbo. You see him here, top left in disguise. Um, he didn't need to go in disguise, he just liked being in disguise. Um, they were not just content to send information that Garbo himself claimed to have seen. They went a whole step further. They began to make up sub-agents. They began to make up individuals that they pretended uh, were spying for Garbo. They ended up with 27 in all. They included a, a disgruntled American NCO, uh, two Venezuelan students in Glasgow, um, a, a waiter, a Gibraltarian waiter, 
My own favourite of, of the Garbo network is the Brotherhood of the Welsh Aryan Order. <laughs> this was a group of fanatical Nazi Welshmen. <laughs> One of the odder obsessions of German intelligence was that the Welsh valleys were simply rife with, with very, very angry Welshmen, just waiting for the opportunity to rise up and take over the government. Um, there were six members of the Welsh Aryan Brotherhood in all. They were deployed around the south coast of Britain to watch the growing army uh, as, uh, and the fake army that was being assembled in Kent, which I should have mentioned before. Because, of course, to reinforce the idea that a huge army was coming from there, they had to build an entirely fake army. Um, and um, so the reports from the Welsh Aryan Brotherhood and the rest of them passed through Garbo, and they would all end up with Karl Erich Kulenthal here, who was the head of the Madrid Abwehr, and probably the most comprehensively duped intelligence officer of the entire war. His assessments went directly to Admiral Wilhelm Canaris. They were so completely believed that, in many instances, Garbo's reports were simply translated and stapled verbatim to the back of intelligence assessments by the Wehrmacht. What MI5 didn't know, and would never discover was that the entire double-cross system was simultaneously being betrayed from within. Uh, you see here Major Anthony Blunt, who was then a high-flying, very, very well-thought-of officer within MI5. Blunt had many roles uh, within British intelligence, but one of them was to draw up monthly reports on the progress of the double-cross system. In fact, he drew up two reports. He drew up a shortened version, which went to Churchill, and he drew up a much longer and more comprehensive version, which was used internally within MI5, but which was also copied and sent to Moscow. One of the ironies of this situation is that, in fact, Stalin knew a great deal more about how the double-cross system worked than Churchill did. <laughs> now, the danger here, of course, was that if the NKVD, the, the, the Soviet intelligence system, had been penetrated by German intelligence, and there is some evidence that it was... Of course, there was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact when there was a free and, 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 and complete exchange of intelligence between Moscow and Berlin. If that was the case, then this, this material that Blunt was sending would go straight back to Berlin. However, here is a wrinkle. The case officer, the NKVD case officer running the Cambridge Five, was convinced that, in fact, they were all plants. Because all the information that was being sent by the Cambridge Five, and particularly by Blunt, because it all married up perfectly, because it was all self-corroborating, she came to the conclusion that she herself, they must be the victims of a massive double cross. <laughs> so the effect of this, of course, would be that if the Germans did get hold of it, they would be told that, in fact, it was all a hoax. And what was the effect of that? It would actually reinforce the deception. I'll leave that thought with you there. <laughs> Meanwhile, trouble was brewing in Gibraltar. <laughs> you see here on the right Mary Shearer, who was the only uh, woman case officer in MI5, and she was Treasure's case officer. She was Lily's case officer. And she warned that Lily was becoming increasingly distressed by the fact that her dog had not been sent over from Gibraltar. In fact, she was threatening to go on strike. Mary even suggested at one point that they should scramble uh, a Royal Naval submarine to go and get this wretched dog, <laughs> at which point the worst possible news arrived from Gibraltar. <laughs> Babs had been run over by a truck. <laughs> now, Lily didn't believe this, and she may have been right, 
because she believed that MI5 had simply killed her dog. One of the odder things about the way these files are released to the National Archives is that although they are quite heavily redacted, large numbers of pages are missing, large sections are missing from, from many of the pages for, for various reasons, including national security, quite understandably, but they do also release an index at the front, which means you can tell what is not in the file. Uh, there are 14 items in Treasure's file in the index relating to Babs the dog, all of which have gone missing. So you can make your own conclusion from that. Uh, Lily initially seemed to take the news of her dog's death quite well. In fact, she was plotting revenge. Um, I have luckily had access to Lily's private diary, uh, in which she writes that she intends to get even with MI5. You see her here with her German case officer, a man called Emil Kliemann. Um, Lily, having apparently recovered from the death of her dog, was sent back to Lisbon in March 1944 to obtain a new wireless and some new wireless codes from her German handler. This she did, returned to Britain very successfully with this new equipment. But what she didn't tell her handlers was that she had also been given what is called a control signal. Now a control signal is an, an effectively an invisible message that is inserted into a wireless message that indicates when an agent is under control. And what it says is to her German case officer, if I put this message in, it means the British have got me, and you must therefore disbelieve everything I am sending you. More to the point, you should read everything I am sending you in reverse. So this was Lily's way, of, and her control signal was simply to insert a double dash. If she ever inserted a double dash into her messages, that was to tell Kleeman that in fact she'd been caught, and that anything she sent from then on was being done under control. And in her diary she wrote, I now have them in my power. Because of course... The potential impact of this was, was possibly cataclysmic because if they realised that Lily's messages were all false and she was indicating a build-up of a huge army in Kent and very little activity around Southampton where the real army was assembling, the Germans would then go back and look at all the other messages they were getting from their agents and realise there was a pattern. They would therefore realise that in fact the real attack was coming in Normandy. Meanwhile, plans for the fake army were proceeding apace. You see here one of a very large fleet of dummy tanks that were assembled on the south coast of Britain. The only problem with these things was that in very high winds they would simply take off, <laughs> um, somewhat undermining their deceptive role. Uh, here you see a familiar figure. No, this is not, in fact, uh, Montgomery. This is a, an actor. This is an actor called Clifton James, who was recruited as Monty's double. It sounds like the sort of thing that no one would ever have attempted, but sure enough, they did. They decided, um, the team of B1A, that if they could ensure that Monty was spotted somewhere else just before the D-Day landings, and it was widely known in German circles that he was going to lead the ground troops during the invasion, if he could be spotted somewhere else, uh, then it would indicate to the Germans that there was no need to worry, that, you know, that the invasion was some way off. Sure enough, poor old um, uh, James was uh, recruited as Monty's double. He was trained up to look and sound like Monty. Uh, he was, he'd lost a finger during the First World War, so they gave him a prosthetic finger in case anyone spotted that too. Uh, and sure enough, he turned up in Gibraltar where it was known that a German spy was operating. And the news that Monty had been spotted in Gibraltar got back to Berlin within 12 hours. Whether it had any effect or not, we have no idea. But Let me also just quickly introduce you to the very important subject of pigeons. Uh, if you ever get a chance, do take out the MI5 pigeon files in the National Archives because they are some of the funniest documents you will ever read. Um, I want to introduce you to an unsung hero of the Second World War, Flight Lieutenant Melville Walker. 
Uh, he was in charge of MI5's top secret pigeon section. Uh, now, pigeons were still a very useful way of sending secret messages during the Second World War. They fly almost undetected. They are pretty reliable. They can cover very long distances. Melville Walker, in charge of MI5's pigeon section, B1A6, I think it is, was convinced that Britain was rife with enemy pigeons, enemies, <laughs> enemy sleeper pigeons, moreover, <laughs> that had been left behind in Britain following an international pigeon race in 1938. Uh, he believed that German spies were using these pigeons to send back copious messages across the channel, so he invented the first and only pigeon interception unit. Six peregrine falcons on the Scilly Isles. <laughs> And every time a pigeon was spotted flying in a straight line across the, uh, the channel, uh, he would, they would release the peregrine falcons and bring down the pigeon. It was highly successful, the pigeon interception unit. It brought down 28 pigeons in all, all of which turned out to be British. Because, because there were no enemy pigeons in Britain. Completely undaunted by this failure, Melville Walker came up with the great double-cross pigeon deception scheme. Melville Walker knew that large numbers of enemy uh, pigeon lofts were operating in occupied France, and he believed that if he could infiltrate British pigeons disguised as German pigeons <laughs> into these pigeon lofts, the Germans would eventually realise that their entire system had been penetrated by the enemy, at which point they would kill all their pigeons. That was the theory. So he invented a new way to disguise British pigeons as German pigeons. Um, it is a fact that it, it, uh, sort of B-grade pigeons, instead of flying home, will often join just the nearest pigeon loft they can find. Amazingly, he got permission for this operation. And on the eve of D-Day, 350 slightly knackered British pigeons, <laughs> disguised as German pigeons, were dropped in occupied France. They all went AWOL. <laughs> now, I merely mention uh, this important episode because... We tend to look at the Second World War intelligence operations as if they were uniformly successful. They were not. Some of them were fantastic <coughs> failures. And the double-cross system veered very close to that itself. You'll remember I mentioned at the beginning a man called Johnny Jebson, who, who recruited uh, Popoff right at the beginning of the war. Now, Popoff had said to Tar Robertson at the beginning of the war that he'd explained that Jebson was an Anglophile, Jepson was a very strange man. I mean, he, he, he was a, a very dodgy businessman. He had a number of completely illegal scams running throughout Europe. But he was, as I say, a, a vigorous anti-Nazi. And he was duly recruited by MI6 as agent artist. And Jepson began to produce some really high-grade material. He was the only spy that the Allies had within the Abwehr itself. He began to produce information on troop deployments, on munitions productions, on morale, on the internecine battles within the German high command. He was very well placed for all of this. He was extremely good. He was, in fact, too good. Because Jebsen began to provide MI5 with information about the German intelligence network in Britain. All those agents that Germany believed it was running within the British Isles. Now, of course, all of those agents were, in fact controlled by Britain. So when they were not picked up, when they were not intercepted, when they continued to send their wireless messages just as they had before, Jebson came to the only obvious conclusion, the only sensible deduction. He worked out that they must all be under British control. 
So Jebsen was the only person in the German high command who knew the D-Day secret. He knew what was going on, which made him an extreme liability, partly because Bletchley Park had begun to intercept messages from Jebsen's best friend. You see him here, he's a man called Hans Brandes, who was actually secretly reporting on Jebsen to his, his, Jebsen's own spy masters, describing the meetings that Jebsen appeared to be having with British intelligence and warning that Jebsen appeared to be about to defect. And these messages were going to Georg Hansen, who was the number two at the advert. Now, this presented Tar Robertson with really an appalling dilemma because there was a real danger that if Jebsen was picked up and, and taken in for questioning, that he would reveal what he knew about the D-Day secret. And there is a long and in some ways rather unedifying debate, uh, which you can find in, in, in the Popoff file, in the Jebsen and Popoff file, which describes a, a rather ugly discussion that took place within MI5, really about whether or not to, in their own genteel words, whether to bump Jebsen off, <coughs> whether it would simply be better to kill him and get him out of the way because he was a liability. This went back and forth, and eventually uh, they did what most bureaucracies do when faced with two equally unpalatable alternatives. They did nothing at all. So Jebsen was simply left in Lisbon, where he was operating, uh, to await his fate. Now, meanwhile, Lily, you see her again here with Kleeman, her case officer, confessed to Mary Shearer that she had been given a control signal. Uh, she did this accidentally. She didn't mean to tell her. But then she would not tell her what the control signal was, or indeed whether she had already put it into her wireless messages. Now, we are now in, in, uh, in March 1944, so there are, there are three months to go before the invasion. And MI5 began to scour Lily's messages to try and work out whether she had, in fact, inserted this control signal into her messages and tipped off uh, the Germans to what was happening. Because if she had, then there was a high probability they would be waiting in, in Normandy. They came to the conclusion that she had not. She was fired immediately. Uh, but they came to the conclusion that she had not, in fact, done this. The heart rate was just coming down from that piece of information when the worst possible news arrived from Lisbon. Jebsen was invited by the head of the Adver in Lisbon to come to the offices to receive uh, a medal for uh, services to the Third Reich. He arrived. He was knocked unconscious. He was injected with a sleeping drug. He was put into a steel trunk and driven in the back of a car to Berlin. When the news of his abduction reached MI5, it sent a thrill of pure horror through the organisation because they realised that with just six weeks to go before D-Day, the future of the entire operation depended on one extremely dodgy German businessman who might or might not and probably would crack under torture. I'm not going to tell you what happened to him because I want you to buy the book. <laughs> D-Day was an astonishing deception success. Eisenhower had said to the planners of Operation Fortitude, the grand overarching deception plan, he said, on the eve of D-Day, he said, if you can keep the 15th Army, those panzer divisions massed around Calais, he said, if you can keep them out of my hair for 24 hours, you will have done your job. Six weeks later, the 15th Army was still waiting in the Pas de Calais for an invasion that never came. 
That same week, Garbo's controller sent him a message saying, you have done so well, we are awarding you the Iron Cross. The Germans never realised that they'd been sold a dummy. And by the time it was clear that there was not going to be an invasion in Calais, by the time they worked that out, it was far too late. The, the, the bridgehead had already been established in Normandy. And indeed, after the war, the German high command simply refused to accept that they had ever been sold a dummy and just assumed that the Allies had actually just changed their plans, that, that the Normandy invasion had been so successful they'd simply called off um, the invasion of, of Calais. Um, here you see the lines of fortifications awaiting the invasion uh, in Calais that never happened. Um, and ditto in Norway, where a secondary Operation Fortitude II, Fortitude North, uh, was, was in place, which was the idea that a second completely fake army was going to invade from Scotland into Scandinavia. At least 300,000 German troops remained on high alert in, in, in Scandinavian countries, awaiting again an invasion that never came. Now, it's impossible, obviously, to quantify with any precision what the precise effect of this deception operation was. But those involved were un under no, in no doubt that, in fact, it had materially affected the outcome of the D-Day invasion. And by way of proof, I simply ask <coughs> you this last um, item. This also comes from uh, the National Archives. This is a map captured, in fact, in Italy in the days after D-Day, which reflects where the German high command believed British troops to be massing just prior to the invasion. And as you can see, they are massed around Kent. That is where the main army is expected to come from, whereas the points where it actually did come from are comparatively sparsely covered. This clearly shows that the Germans believed that this mighty Fusac, this huge army, was waiting to attack from Kent, and they continued to believe it. Now, that victory was in fact made possible in part by, as I said at the beginning, this very British talent for record-keeping and preservation. These enormous files are, are an extraordinary work of collation and preservation, and the Germans, with all their reputation for efficiency, had nothing that could match it. I mean, the battle for D-Day was fought on the beaches, but it was also fought on paper, in files that were carefully maintained and then preserved for all time. Now, the release of these files, which began in 2001... Uh, to the National Archives, represents, I think, an extraordinary sea change in attitudes towards official secrecy in this country. Until a few years ago, these organisations, MI5 and MI6, did not even officially exist at all. Uh, you can now read them. Uh, and these are documents that have a very special feel to them. They're, they're documents written by people who never expected them to be made public. And this gives them a very particular sort of granular quality in some ways, because they are honest in a way that many official government records are not. Uh, most officials know that one day their work is going to be scrutinised by outside, and they seek to frame the record in some way, and even to distort it. The spies and the spy masters in these files do not do that, because they do not think anyone is ever going to see them. And so when it goes wrong, they admit it. There is no attempt to cover up. There are wonderful little bits of marginalia, particularly when the Jebson case is coming to its horrible climax where they are writing in pencil, oh my God, we are completely finished here. <laughs> um, and so to read, to read these documents is actually to be able... It's a real privilege because you are able to eavesdrop on a secret world. And that, for me, has been one of the great pleasures of working in this area. And as a final testament to the importance of these files, let me just quote you a, a spy from a different era. 
1977, Kim Philby, then obviously in exile in, in Moscow, gave a lecture to the KGB in which he advised Russian spies to try to penetrate MI5, first and foremost, above all other Western intelligence agencies, because of what he called its immeasurably superior filing system. <laughs> Kim Philby knew that paper is power. It wouldn't be now, it would now be electronic paper, but the, the record, in the record lies the power. And, and, and from the greatest spy master, the greatest spy of modern times, that is, I think, a sort of backhanded compliment uh, to the great British archival tradition and to these national archives. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 15th of January 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.